The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Welcome to the Brandon Peters Show and the Summer of 82 at 40 series. The Summer of 82 at 40. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of that year. As always, along for this journey from Forbes, graduate of Rydell High. Not quite. It's Scott Mendelson. For the audio listeners, he was pointing at the camera. <laughs> Let me try that again. Scott Mendelson phone. No. Oh, Ow. I didn't even. I get it. I get Sorry. it. I didn't get. I'm. If I mad. had to explain, it didn't work. Uh, this episode will be looking at the weekend of June 11 through the 13th, the start of a phenomenon, which we'll be talking about the rest of the summer. All right. So this. Please, um, no wait. Yes. Uh, this week, uh, the only two movies uh, this week. It's a, just a dual release weekend, which with one of them, I'm not surprised why no one would want to go against it, even in the moment of 82. And uh, somebody tried, though. You had to have some sort of counted programming and uh, go with the musical. We have a movie that's probably the one of the best, if not the best, mainstream movie of this summer. Let's counter-program with what's probably one of the worst, if not the worst, big mainstream movie of this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let them fight. <laughs> like, I, like I told you earlier, Scott, one's got some awesome, wonderful music, memorable through the ages, and the other is Grease 2. But Woo-hoo! first, let's check out the news of the moment this week. It's the news of the moment. What a big day this is for him. The L.A. Lakers have won it at home. Their second world championship in three years. And their third world championship since moving to Los Angeles. This week, L.A. Dodgers Steve Garvey is fifth to play in 1,000 consecutive games. Uh, The New York Mets drafted Dwight Gooden. Doc Gooden, the guy with the cocaine problem, Uh, Roger McDowell, and Randy Myers. Also in sports, the 36th NBA championship, uh, the Lakers beat the Philadelphia 76ers four games to two at the, this is is a mean statistic, but I found it, uh, the ninth daytime Emmy Award presentations, Susan Lucci lost for the third time. If if people remember... (laughs) It was a thing that she kept losing. Like, she was nominated damn near every year and didn't win one till the late 90s? Yep. Everybody knew who Susan Lucci was. You didn't watch her in anything, but you knew she was good at losing the Emmy. For <laughs> she was the Amy movie. Adams of her day. Pretty much. There you go, yeah. The, the Amy Adams, Bradley Cooper, who, you know. <laughs> Peter, Peter O'Toole. At least she Although, won one, though. 
Although if you take the continuity of Arrival at face value, she could still win Best Actress for Arrival. That's true. That's true. Uh, (laughs) President Ronald Reagan addresses the British Parliament in his Ash Heap of History speech. General Efrain Rios Montt uh, declares himself president of Guatemala. Taxi last airs on ABC and moved to NBC that fall. I don't remember that Taxi changed stations. Neither did I. I remember Step by Step went from ABC to CBS. And I think Full House did a couple seasons moved, if I'm wrong. But I didn't know Taxi did that as well. That's interesting factoids. Uh, John N. McMahon replaces Bobby R. Inman, becoming director of the CIA. Larry Holmes TKO's Jerry Cooney in 13 for the heavyweight boxing title. I've met him. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, it was one of the first times I met a famous person when I was really young. I, sadly, I knew him just from getting his butt kicked by Mike Tyson Ugh. during Tyson's brief reign of terror, if you want to call it oh, that. Oh, my gosh, yeah. The, the, the punch-out era, I the pun- yes. call it. The pre-Mr. Dream era. Yeah, the, the pre-Buster Douglas. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, right. that's that's a whole different story. But yeah. Yeah, Dwight Gooden, God, I'd forgotten about him. Mm-hmm. Yes, he, he unfortunately he peaked very early, but yeah. for the first few seasons he was a, a just a brutal pitcher in terms right. of just strikeout after strikeout after strikeout. But yeah, unfortunately he peaked during those first few years with the Mets. Yeah. He kept being injured a lot or and then he went to the Dodgers. Yeah. Him and Eric Eric David. I was a I was a Reds fan back then. I paid attention to them quite a bit. And I bet I remember him and Eric Davis were like buddies. That was one of the best Reds and uh Eric Davis left the Reds to go to the Dodgers to be with Dwight Gooden. And I believe they both got busted for cocaine during that time. <laughs> so that's what I remember about that. Sunday on CBS. Oh, is this Nearly naked woman. Archie learns the bare fact about marriage. And will Gloria survive a hilarious night in a spooky basement? I saw a skeleton in your cellar. Then on the Jeffersons, is George having a hot affair? I am every woman's fantasy. And on one day at a time, it's back to school pressure for Barbara. Is there something I could break? Go ahead, but be selective. Then can Dr. John save a fellow doctor bent on self-destruction? Get through as a surgeon. Sunday. This is CBS. Other than watching the news, what were people watching on television? The Nielsen's Top 10 TV, Heart to Heart, took first place this week on ABC. Uh, The Jeffersons came in second on CBS. Three's Company uh, is number three on ABC, followed by Too Close for Comfort on ABC at number four. Trapper John MD on CBS at number five. Like, this is looking like a much more normal TV rate. A lot of less specials going yeah. here in the TV, the top 10 for the first time. So Trapper John, MD on CBS is number five. MASH comes in number six at CBS. Uh, I, I always just imagine MASH, what it was on was like number one all the time. But it's, it's not. It flows right in the top 10. Uh, Alice on CBS at number seven. Our favorite Hill Street Blues on NBC at number eight. Number nine, 60 Minutes. Yeah, falling down on CBS. And finally, number 10, give me a break on NBC. Because I was curious, the NBA championship game six where the Lakers won was 15th. So did not make a dent in the top 10, but top 20 is pretty good if you ask me. That's how shows like Jag got to stick around for (laughs) ever. I think we could all use a little guarantee. All the way action. Let's go. The dancing is back. 
fun is back. The nerd is back. They're all together again. Grease is still the word. Grease 2. You'll love it. Rated PG. Starts today at selected theaters in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Check newspapers. Our first film, a sequel, Summer's sequels, temples, all the time. Grease 2, directed by Patricia Birch, who did the choreography on the original Grease film. So she's like promoted to director here. Why not? If you're going to be doing all the choreography, it makes sense. Uh, she did the Cindy Lauper videos, also directed uh, those for True Colors and Money Changes Everything. And she worked on SNL as a choreographer from 1979 to 86. She was a choreographer uh, hired on Big, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, The Cowboy Way, The Nanny Diaries, and recent stuff such as Boardwalk Empire, which Boardwalk Empire is like 10 years old now, but uh, something people might know. Uh, It's written by Ken Finkelman, the writer and director of, out this same year, Airplane 2. And he did lots of TV and movies. This stars Michelle Pfeiffer, Maxwell Caulfield, Pamela Adlon, Adrian Zmed, Christopher McDonald, Sid Caesar, Dottie Goodman, Connie Stevens, Tab Hunter, Eddie Deason, and Dee Dee Kahn. No, it is not Max Rex Manning Day, but a British student at a 1960s American high school must prove himself to the leaders of the girls' gang whose members can only date the greasers. Scott Grease 2. It sticks. I mean, it's when I was growing up, Grease 2 had a reputation as one of the worst movies of all time. And when I say that, I'm talking about, you know, mainstream, wide-release theatrical pictures. I'm not talking about straight-to-video or... It fit the sequel narrative. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Having said that, there is a contingent of Grease 2 fans out there that think it was unjustly derided and they, they, it's a problem with culture, not a problem, it's just annoying. It's that the people seem to always want to reclaim every film that was considered bad in the past tense as good, actually, and here's why. Mm-hmm. And it's not. I mean, it's, I, I rewatched it for the first time in a while. Michelle Pfeiffer is fine, but she looks miserable. Yeah, no, I she does she, not look like she was. She knew. She knew yeah, early she on. Knew. Well, also, I think she's one of those actresses like Jodie Foster or Emma Watson, even to a certain extent, that you know she's smart. She knows she's smart. They can't play dumb terribly well. Right. Especially when it comes to doing you know, dumb romances. And obviously not every romance is dumb, but, you know, Anna and the King, where you have this wonderfully scholarly, educated young woman who basically falls for a tyrant, but it's okay because he, she slightly softens him up. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, Beauty and the Beast, same thing, where you have these these actresses that you know know better than this nonsense. Yeah. The other thing is you know, the songs are also bad. I mean, they're kitschy and they're campy and they certainly have a cult following. But the idea of singing a song in high school biology class about, you know, the birds and the bees is cute. But the song is meh. You know, the idea of, you know, the idea of singing a song about the Cold War, you know, a, a duck and cover bomb shelter scenario is cute. But the song is generic and boring. The problem is most of the songs are basically 
you know, they don't move the plot. They don't advance the character. They sound like it, first drafts. Yes, they sound like first drafts. They they feel like first drafts, and they are there just for the sake of having songs. You know, it's a situation where someone in class says, you know, we need to learn about the birds, the bees, and they just break out into a number about, you know, reproduction, blah, blah, blah. Again, it doesn't move the story. It doesn't move the plot. It doesn't develop character. I mean, it isn't terribly clever. It's it's the lyrics are as on the nose you know, as possible, because that's the only reason for those songs to exist. And the core dramatic arc is just, you know, a guy that has a crush on a young girl that's theoretically out of his league. And that's it. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the first Greece. Well, it's just reverse but, Greece, you know. But it's not even reverse because in Greece they had a prior relationship. Right. And there's a genuine push-pull. And the film, the play, you know, has something to say about, you know, being yourself and, you know, not giving in to peer pressure before Sandy gives in to peer pressure becomes not herself, but that's another story. Danny um, Danny does too. He has that letter jacket and and, you know, one of the things that always annoyed me about the film isn't just that in the play, you know, I mean, pardon me, I grew mm-hmm. up on the film, is that, you know, he, she, you know, she changes herself entirely for a guy, a guy that already likes her. <laughs> I mean, the, that's one of the reasons I never was big on Greece is that, you know, the entire time is these two kids clearly are still into each other. Mm-hmm. It's just they don't get a moment alone or they, they you know, he especially keeps sort of giving in to his, his peer pressure instincts and blowing it. But there's no indication that she needs to change for him at all. You know, he likes her just the way she is. But with Grease 2, you don't even have that. It's just a nerd that likes a jock and decides to be sort of a mysterious phantom jock who has no personality traits whatsoever. So I have no, you know, again, it's a real reason. Like if the film was more able to be outwardly lusty, then okay, she just wants to schlup him because he looks odd on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. But because it's still a PG-rated film with theoretically targeting children, you have to sort of buy the idea that she's drawn to this guy for something beyond surface level value. Yeah, and you never get that, and it, she comes off looking like an idiot as a result. Right. And the other characters are are, are you know cartoons. They're cardboard. Well, they're cutouts. forgettable stand-ins for the characters from the previous one. Yes. And- it's a terrible film. And honestly, the only reason I feel the need to explain in detail why it's bad, other than just it's an unnecessary sequel to a mega hit that doesn't have anything new to bring to the table. So this, as you said, they just reverse the genders is because of this weird, you know, relatively recent reappraisal <laughs> that seems to argue that Greece two is good. It's like, and it's better not. than the original. Like- it's not. It's really not. It's really and bad. I, it, it lives up to that reputation. Like, it does. And I'm all in favor of culturally reappraising films about women, in this case, directed by a woman that may have gotten a bum rap along the line. But, you know, the critics were right this time. Yeah. Um, it stinks. Like, <laughs> it's not Ishtar, which is a perfectly yeah. okay, you know, comedy that just you know, was ridiculously expensive and, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. It stinks. It stuck then it sticks now it's you know it's not even jennifer's body where you know i'm not huge on that film but i can see why it has a fan base yeah i, well, think, I think it's better written than directed but that's another conversation right we have like this oh. one like i i like to i, I i've talked about on the show a lot that we need to focus a lot on 
film history, which we don't now because a lot of what we know is the history of film as having the road paved by straight white males. Like, yes, that there's a lot of films that they panned that maybe they didn't understand, give a chance or whatever, that we didn't have any people of color, any like LGBTQ presence, strong presences, and not enough female presence in the critical uh, critical circle, the published world, that we don't have a real clear picture of of what our true classics or what could hold up with other ones too. We know what the white dudes liked, and they're you know I agree, I'm a white dude. I agree with you know plenty of them, but there's a lot of missing pieces uh, in our film history in terms of what's revered, what the tiers or uh, the pantheon of great films and classics are. Uh, we've got. We've got plenty of notables, but there's a lot of others from film history that do need reappraised. Grease, too. No fucking way. I'm sorry. Yeah, we got it right the first time. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say <laughs> and no. Not, and again, it's not like this is some passion project that got you know set through the studio meat grinder. This was a shameless exploitation sequel. It's understandable. long. The first one, yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, you know, understandably, because the first one was the biggest grossing movie of 1978. Yes, Grease. it made more than Superman and Animal House mm-hmm. and Halloween, to use three obvious examples. Yeah. But there's no reason for it to exist, and it in no way, shape, or form does it artistically justify its existence. Right. It's it is it's tough, and like I get making a sequel, go for it because the Grease the stage play, massive success. Grease the movie, massive success, sells records, massive. Let's let's fucking try. Let's try to add on to this. Uh, somewhere along the line, this project got to a point of disinterest from everyone, but was so far along that we have to make this now. This was supposed <laughs> to be Cher and Andy Gibb. Like, oh, that makes sense. That's big. Like that. Okay, they tried to get like Debbie Harry. She didn't want to do it. Kim Carnes doesn't want to do it. Rick Springfield. Like, it ends up they were planning to do a, a four grease movies and a TV show. Like they were hoping to, they were hoping to franchise this back in the day. This killed it all. One of those scripts, I believe the grease three script, correct me if I'm wrong. It wound up getting repurposed as high school musical for Disney. Oh, wow. With Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudge, all of them. That is a grease script. That was re- a sequel repurposed, which That's was funny. very successful. Well, that's that to me is a classic ripoff. Don't remake. Yeah, because that you know spawned an iconic, relatively speaking, iconic franchise unto mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. Um. But okay, and so, it's better. And all well, I'm not big on Ice Cream Two. I think it stinks. Part yeah. one and three are at least better than Grace Two. There you go. Well, yeah. I so like this movie. Like I think part of the thing is Grease. The original. I'm a fan of Grease. The original. I've grown up with it. I still like it. I love the song. I like the stage play. Come at me. I know it's it's a it's a weak link in people like, oh, would you like it? But I also realize it's a movie people and dudes love to hate. Because why? One, it's a phenomenon. It's well-loved. And, and problematically, it's like the one musical people genuinely know, at least in the United States. It's the one musical that they know. So it's fun to hate. So when someone's like, Grease 2 is good, actually, the haters of the first one are going to come on just despite that and build the narrative 
I don't even know if Grease 2 would be fun at like a midnight screening to poke fun or I just because you feel bad for the performers. Yeah. And like you said, you have your your leads here are a disinterested Michelle Pfeiffer and a just nothing Maxwell Caulfield who he has like just nothing. He's like he's flat and then he has to play a alter ego that's flatter. Yeah. And it's oh man, I they saw like you see Michelle Pfeiffer dancing in these numbers because she gets close ups and she's just like Yeah, she barely dances. It's bad. And at its worst, when you watch Michelle Pfeiffer in this film, you get the feeling of someone that thinks, Oh my god, my career is about to end before it even begins and there's nothing I can mm-hmm. do about it. Yeah. Obviously that didn't happen for no. Uh, this is but, a weird. This is the weird yeah, situation a, yeah. where the girl's career wasn't killed, but the or wasn't killed, but the guys was. Yeah. Normally, Maxwell Caulfield get like eighty more chances. Yeah, he's dead in the water. Like until Empire Records, nobody cares. Like that's crazy. But and I didn't even know he was at Empire Records. He's he's um he's yeah. Rex Manning. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's Rex Manning Day. Also, oh, where was it going? Yeah, so. She's not interested, doesn't care. He's flat, and what am I? Her performance here reminds me of a bonus feature on the uh, what was the Walt Disney Mary Poppins movie with Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson? Saving Mr. Banks. Saving Mr. Banks. Thank you. There was a bonus feature on that where they had a bunch of the crew. Tom Hanks isn't present. Emma Thompson is. They're all in her room, and the guy who wrote Let's Go Fly a Kite is in there playing the piano, and everybody's in there singing it. And Emma Thompson's got this look on her face like she's like, like they, like she was accidentally walking by the offices as they were doing that, and they forced her to be like, and she was like, this is stupid. This is stupid. And she's like, Let's go fly a kite. And she's like in her cot and just like, Well, that is a character for the movie. True. True. Maybe she was totally That's method, interesting. But she looks yeah, yeah. like get me the fuck out of here. But yeah, th- there's I I sitting through it like I just it's real like this movie we talk about it's really horny, like overtly bluntly horny. Maybe people good. have fun with that. Yeah, I, I think that's I, where some of the the, you know, retroactive huzzas come from because we live in a very comparatively sexless cinema age. I feel bad for Didi Khan. Like, oh, it's like, oh, you're the only one that would like. Yeah. Was avail- like she's she's the grease mascot because she's in. Yeah. She touches everything and she's adorable. But this is a dumb part for yeah. to force Frenchie back. I mean, Grant Sid Caesar's back. The principal. But those are that's like having Q and M and all them in the Bond movies kind of around. But F- Frenchie. Yeah, it's like Lazenby playing an assistant to Connery in like Yeah, it's it's notable movie. because you know, she's like, the only one there. Yeah. And she disappears like Yeah. through it and apparently they didn't have like a completed script when they started this too. Like I'm shocked. Yeah, shocked. Like it's I I can't I had nothing I don't have anything good to say about this movie. Like I really don't I was hoping like I hadn't seen this movie like well, I grew up being told it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, and I avoided. It. I think I watched it in college and thought 
man, this is bad. And then throughout these, uh, it's probably, it's been 20 years, and watching it for this, I'm like, oh my. This is just outright terrible. Like, <laughs> it's it's really, it's really stunning and disappointing that this turned out, like, there's, like, I don't know where this reappraisal is coming from, other than, like, what... How low were your expectations going into it? Like, how low? Because this is a dud. A dud among... Like, this is where people get mad. People used to get... We get a lot... Like, the sequel suck narrative, kind of gone now. We get so many quality efforts or people trying or continue narrative planning, thinking, being conscious, not just like, yeah, go make, go make another one. We made some money last time around, you know. People think about lore with the Friday the 13th series. No, we're going to go now. Like, great, we can't get one. But people people say that. But, like, Grease 2, I, I, I believe we're getting an HBO Max Grease. I think it's Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus. Us that all right, all right. Rise of the Pink Ladies prequel that everybody's excited for. Can't wait. Can't wait. Um, I will say, though, the in the dot, dot, dot is good, actually, category is the Grease Live. Oh, that's fantastic. I, like I don't even Grease like Live. Grease. That's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. It is so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've seen it. I've seen it. But if anyone hasn't seen it, it was one of those live plays that the networks do from time to time. People love to hate watch. People love hate watching This one, I don't know how they did it, but they basically shot and edited a movie live. Right. I mean, it's phenomenal. They they did Um, grease the movie kind of, but like pulled off the play too like they yeah. added the songs back in that were gone they because it was i think it was a lot of it was mainly the stage play but with like throwing those touches yeah. of the movie in and it's a lot of fun it, yeah, it moves it's vanessa it's Hudgens, like a, amazingly in real time it's edited yeah. like a movie yeah it's hudgens incredible. is a great rizzo Julia Huff is good as yeah. like terrific like all the the cast mario lopez crushing it as vince fontaine like yeah, there's some good fun people that pop up. Anna Gasteyer, perfection as the principal. Like, it's a fun, fun yeah. take on it. Like, yeah, I don't even like Grease, and it knocked me. I was knocked out by it. Yeah, I was very impressed. That's how you do Grease again. Like, let's do yeah. it, but like in a weird, fresh way. And that's why you should be doing things like like. It's, I guess, a remake, but I mean, you're a stage play. It's, a, it's a new adaptation, just yeah, like when you do stuff that was a book. You're just doing a new adaptation of the book, like, yeah. But yeah, Grease Two, just folks. I'm, I'm sorry. We were right the first time. We were right the first. Send us your hate, please, because <laughs> I want to know what I'm looking for in Grease Two. I go into these things open, like I want to like, I wanted to see, I wanted to come away with like, well, that. That song was good, and I don't like. I I think the the opening number at the school is like, oh well, it gets better than this, right? And I think that might have been the best song. Yep. All yeah, the it's, ones it's... sound lazy. They sound like like yes, they're they're absolutely right. Rider, and then like we're gonna score tonight. Score! Like these are lazy. Yeah, songs. The, the, like, the lyrics the lyrics are lazy. The choreography is lazy. And because the songs don't, again, they don't advance the plot, they don't advance the character, they are narratively lazy. The whole film just sort of sits there waiting to die. Yeah. Because there's nothing else going on. Right. There's no actual plot. No. It's not even reverse grease. Like, 
No. And then the funny thing, like that dude from the Scorpions, I'm like, what a loser. He's still like picking on high school kids. Like could have invented a new villain or a new Scorpion guy. You bring it back. We're like, like all one of them had to do is point out like, what the hell are you doing? Like we're in high school, man. Like how old are you? 26? Like, <laughs> Come on. Uh, yeah, it's, it was terrible then. It's terrible now. Yes. I mean, I'm in all favor of certain movies getting a critical reevaluation in light of new context. But right. this is not one of the ones that deserves that kind of re- reassessment. You hear that, Andrew Garfield? American Top Boy. I'm Casey Kasem coming to you from Hollywood. Let's get to some good tunes. Uh, the Casey Kasem Top 40, the, the, 10, the top 10 spots for this week. Nothing from Grease 2, I'm guessing. Nothing from Grease 2. Not a whole lot of movement here, too. So number 10, we have It's Gonna Take a Miracle by Denise Williams. Uh, number 9, Falling 5 Spots, 8675309 Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone. Number 8, Crimson and Clover by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. She left the top 10 and has returned to it with another single. Kind of interesting. Number 7, Rosanna by Toto. And number six, Heat of the Moment from Asia, moving up two spots. Uh, also moving up two spots, number five, Always on My Mind by Willie Nelson. Uh, number four, The Other Woman by Ray Parker Jr., which is the other song by Ray Parker Jr. Number three, Don't You Want Me by The Human League. Climbing up there. Still unable to take the top spot, Don't Talk to Strangers, Rick Springfield. He has been sitting there at number two. Even get, like he, I think, believe he got leapfrogged by our Five weeks straight, number one, Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. It's still there, Scott. Yes. <laughs> I I don't know if it's going to move. I hope it's not there the whole summer, but we'll have to see. A child's joy. A mother's love. A friend's devotion. In this season of peace, share the magic with your family. Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial from Universal Pictures, rated PG. Now playing a theaters near you, check newspapers. Something that will be there the whole rest of the summer, though, our next film, E.T. The Extraterrestrial, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, who also wrote uh, one of our films this summer, The Escape Artist. Um, the writer of Kundun, Ponyo, the BFG, and Black Stallion. Uh, starring D. Wallace, Henry Thomas, Drew Barrymore, Robert McNaughton, C. Thomas Howe, Erica Laniac, and Peter Coyote. It's about a troubled child who summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. So, um, have you seen E.T. before this, Scott? <laughs> yes. And I think the statute of limitations has expired on this. We had a bootleg uh, Betamax copy of this Mm. film years and years before it officially came out on home video in in 1989. Uh, This was for whatever, you know, Spielberg was always very, you know, for whatever reason, he did not want this film initially to be on VHS or Betamax, as it Mm -hmm. were, home video. Right. So it was. It was a big deal when it, it, you know, it didn't come out on video. I think like 1989 and it didn't the Christopher have a, Nolan of his day. 
Absolutely. <laughs> you know, now with a hundred day window, it's got like a seven year window. And I don't think it was on regular television until Thanksgiving weekend, 1991. Right. No, um, it got re-released it a, a lot. Yes, it did. 1985. Mm-hmm. That's when I saw it the first time. My parents took me to a re-release. Fair. And then it was re-released uh, for its 30th anniversary, no, 20th anniversary in 2002, uh, which was a controversial release because temporarily Steven Spielberg sort of rejiggered with the film mm-hmm. to remove guns that were being held by the film's antagonistic FBI agents. Instead, replaced them with flashlights. The Columbine effect. Something like, yes. And, you know, I'll be honest, as silly as that is, and it does look silly in the film, I'll be honest, when I saw the film as a kid, I was like, wait a minute. These FBI agents are going to shotgun a bunch of kids on bikes? That's not going to look good on the evening news. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I get it. You know, again, even as a kid, I was like, that, that's, that doesn't quite work, make sense, but whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I perhaps had a more aspirational uh, opinion of law enforcement when I was a youngster. No, I saw this many, many times at home, illegally, and I loved it. I mean, I, I, you know, I was the perfect age to appreciate it. I wasn't so young that I was scared of it because I, I do know I had a lot of friends that were a little bit younger than me that were actually scared by ET when they were kids, which I found I personally found hysterical at the time. But, I was, I was, I'll, I'll say, I was scared by all the stuff in the final act with the radiation suits and ET fair. dying and stuff, and I was like. I was scared of that. So I was scared of the um, FBI guy. Like that was what I was scared of. And uh, it's by well, design. Absolutely. The film is, you know, as you know, the film is mostly, if not entirely shot from the, 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 the height point of view of its teen child protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Coyote's comparatively sympathetic, F, you know, federal agent is nicknamed keys. Cause you basically see the keys dangling from his waist. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously and- he eventually does, you know, appear in person. And the only uh, adult you see their face for the longest time is Dee Wallace. All the others yes. are from the back or from the waist. Yes, including uh, history teacher Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's a it's a very simple, elemental, primal, you know, boy and his dog, boy and his whatever story. It's a very raw and authentic, without being, you know, particularly depressing or grotesque story of you know an 80s bro- you know broken family the divorced generation blah 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 an overworked single mother and you know trying to hold the family together in a you know working poor you know 80s era existence and then and i think now it's probably the prototypical steven spielberg film for better or worse mm-hmm. you know the film was so successful it was the biggest grossing movie of all time uh in, in north america and i think worldwide even though too at the time it came out, from 1982 to, well, Jurassic Park uh-huh, was the biggest worldwide <laughs> in 1993. Oh, the director of E.T.'s be pissed about that. Oh, um, and then E.T. made about $359 million, pardon me for skipping a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, in its first domestic release. Made another $40 million in 1985. Uh, so it had $399 million, which was the biggest grossing film of all time until the Star Wars re-release of 1997, um, which added $147 million to that film's domestic total, taking it from 322 to 460 uh, Then, of course, they were all just steamrolled you know, a year, just over a year, under a year later by Titanic. The re-release in 2002 would add another... 30 something million for a 432 domestic total. The film's made around 
think seven seventy five worldwide. I should just click it and look. Am I right? Made a couple right? dollars. Made a couple. Dollars. Yeah, it made a few bucks. Yes, made a crap ton of money. Let's be honest. Yeah, it opened up number one at the box office with eleven million dollars, and it was number one for a total of sixteen weekends in its run, which is still a record. Uh, comparatively speaking, uh, the most weekends of at number one, uh, Titanic at fifteen. Beverly Hills Cop at 14, Tootsie at 14, Home Alone at 12, so forth and so forth. Um, it does not hold the record for most consecutive weekends, number one. Uh, it was number one for its first seven weekends. Then it would periodically come back to the top of the weekend charts over the you know next several months. It still holds the record for the most weekends in the top five, 27 weekends. The most weekends in the top... 10, 44 weekends. The next closest is Beverly Hills Cop with 28. So it almost doubled that. Even Titanic was only in the top 10 for 26 weekends. One of my favorite um, things to track on the box office is the, the run of Beverly Hills Cop. It's the most, yeah. it. like it leaves the top 10 and then returns and climbs into like the top five again. Like that movie, it's crazy to watch. Like over the course of like a year and a half, that movie was just yeah. gold. It was, it was in the top 10 for 28 weeks of Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, E.T. was consecutively in the top 10 for 35 out of those 44 weeks. So it just, it was, a, it, it was. It works. Honestly, like, yeah, it was unprecedented. I mean, well, it just, we had never seen anything like this before. Uh, and adjusted for inflation, there's not a lot that compares. And it's funny, like the, the complaint of Academy Awards and what they nominate and stuff like, and not what people go see, they nominated E.T. And yep. what stands out aside from box office, like E.T. is a really well-made film. Like watching, it is. It's like it's so. It's got a vision. It's got a voice. It's got a, it's got a hook, an aesthetic, and just visually, really good. A sound design, amazing. Like it's a well. It's not just like there's more to it than people went to see. I always argue that yes, especially with ten nominee spots or whatever, you should have a people's champion in there. And uh, the, the awards have already happened by the time this airs. But in at the twenty. 22 Oscar ceremony. Yes, those are there. They're present. And also, as I always say, yeah, you're bummed your movie didn't make it, but why not watch the ones that were nominated? <laughs> Check them out. Maybe you would be like, oh, wow, that was good. No shit. All right. But uh, Steven Spielberg, was, I believe he was not nominated for Best Direct. He was. He year. was. He, he so lost what am I to, thinking of? He lost it to Attenborough. Oh, okay. Um, oh, yeah, because Gandhi won Best Picture. Yeah, Gandhi won, uh, which I disagree. Was it Jaws that he got snubbed? I don't know. I it might have been Jaws. The one snub here from E.T. that I want to point out, uh, maybe Academy-wise, is Dee Wallace, Best Supporting Actress. Like, holy shit, this is one of the best parent portrayals on film. She's got amazing moments. Like, I just am drawn to her, and she's got the moment where... And you could never replicate this. It's amazing when Elliot gets up and calls his brother penis breath, and she's finding Ow. herself between trying to scold him and thinking it's funny at the same. And it's just, it's awesome. It's it's yeah. one of my favorite moments in movie history is watching her reaction to that. It's great, and she's solid, rock solid throughout, and just feels real, like real. And they let her have her moments and everything. It is the kids movie, but they never short her on anything. And I think she's fantastic in this and like should have at least been nominated, I think, but I don't think they were looking at acting from ET, 
but <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's what I, you know, I'm ever more impressed that the Academy actually noticed not just Haley Joel Osment, but Tony Collette the success. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think they both should have won, but whatever. That was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my father. How old would he have been when this came out? Not quite 40. So he's younger than I am now. Jesus. He always tells a story about how he saw it. Not early, early, but, you know, opening weekend back when that wasn't, you know, when everyone necessarily saw it. People took their time to go to movie. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, he basically, he he saw it and he was just so incredibly moved by it that he called up an old army buddy and said, you know, you have to see this right now. It's Mm -hmm. that astonishing. Yeah. And it still works. I mean, obviously there's a certain nostalgia involved. And the formula has been replicated enough times that, you know, you could argue that, it you know, people who grew up, you know, all eight of you that saw the Iron Giant theaters, you know, that the Iron Giant is an E.T. type movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, obviously, it's a very different can of worms. But one of the reasons the first Transformers was relatively popular was that it sort of combined the Michael Bay aesthetic with a Spielbergian boy and his you know, boy and his dog, you know, story. No, it was a Spielberg uh, production too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very much felt like, you know, he was at, you know, he was very involved for, you know, come what may. And, but as, you know, in a vacuum, as you said, it's just an incredibly well-made movie by one of our best mainstream directors mm-hmm. who for him, it was a deeply personal project. And he, aside from, you know, budget, and it wasn't that expensive. I mean, it was like $10 million or something. And it wasn't ridiculously expensive. Yeah, ten and a half million. You know, basically just made the movie he wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And it made seven thirty ninety three worldwide, by the way. Gotcha. Not adjusted for inflation. Uh, I'm sure inflation would be well over a billion dollars at this point. Mm-hmm. Um it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May, which was about three weeks or so before it opened in North America. It opened on the same day as Jurassic Park, uh, eleven wow. years earlier. Wow. So that was strange. Um, I, I do like this movie. It come it, it's come back around because there, it was really popular in the time. Then it became like you said. This became like oh, that's what Steven Spielberg always does. That's that's yes. what his movies are. It's like not even close, but okay. And but like and the coolness factor was like oh, it was a kid movie when you're you know going through and then you're like that's a really good film. Like it took. And there was a, I mean, point where, yeah, that Spielberg wasn't cool to like because, you know, you get popular, you top the world, and it's like, you know, he makes his YouTube movies. I'm like, did you see Schindler's List? Like, what do you, always? Schindler's List was sort of the proof that he could, quote unquote, do more than just TT. Right. And at the time. Yeah. And, you know, but you're right. And the fact that, you know, then and now, ET has sort of become the stereotypical, you know, prototypical Steven Spielberg movie. But unfortunately, but in a now way, it's in a good of, way. But well, I, I think yeah. generally when people throw that out there, they mean it just as this shiny, happy, gee whiz, crowd pleasing kids flick. Yeah. And while it is a kids flick, I think that's why it works. It doesn't try to pander to cool, hip, edgy adults. Right. It is a real movie. It has a rawness and mm-hmm. an authenticity, and you know, it's a drama. Mm-hmm. It is a character drama. It's a family melodrama. Right. Where, you know, into this family melodrama, you plop a singular special effect. Mm-hmm. And when you can do that, we can make just, quote unquote, a real movie that's, you know, we're sort of the, the, 
fly in the ointment is this one skewed fantastical element. That's how you make something that actually, you know, works. I mean, to a varying degree, that's one reason I like Shazam as much as I do. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a raw, emotionally moving and authentic foster care melodrama mm-hmm. that's also, you know, an Amblin scary superhero flick. Well, and I got to say, uh, too, it's funny you mentioned the, the first Transformers movie. I love Bumblebee, and I feel like it did this stuff better than yeah. that one. Like it, and I genuinely like that's one of my like. I guess I love it more than most blockbusters of the last ten years. It was genuinely a favorite film of mine, and I, I think I, yeah, I did make my top ten that year even because yeah. I really uh, like Bumblebee is a case of subtext made text. Yeah, uh, and that's not a criticism. I think if the film works perfectly well, mm-hmm. I do think. And again, this has nothing to do with the movie. I do think it's a fascinating you know situation of you know a movie like Bumblebee is paying homage and or attempting to capture the feeling of the exact same same kind of films that IP specific films like Transformers put out of business. Yeah, right. And again, that's that's not a criticism of the movie. The movie is what the movie is. Uh, I just I think that's very weird. Yeah. John Williams continues to crush scores. Yes, like, he won an Oscar for this one. Amazing. Just listening to um, it. Uh, Peter Coyote has never been better or had a better movie. <laughs> the, yeah. the person that launches, uh, Drew Barrymore. Like, that's funny yeah. enough. Like, it, um, what's his name? Uh, Henry Thomas yeah, is Henry, still around. Henry Thomas is still around. He has... Uh, yeah, he- I think once he aged up to be sort of a, a distinguished character actor, he was doing okay. Yeah, Flanagan likes him, so as long as that guy's yeah. making movies, he'll he'll be around. Uh, it had a bunch of Kelly. Like, see Thomas Howell; he goes through pretty good in the eighties, and we still get solid work now. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny. Like we were talking about this week, Grease too. Like yeah, normally that bomb, the guy would go on have a career, and she'd be gone. And normally from these things, they launch like you know Henry Thomas would have. You know, he had stuff, but... Well, it was harder for a kid actor back yeah. then because you didn't have an entire subgenre of young adult fantasy franchises. Right. But yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, at least through the 90s, he worked, but it was always kind of neat to see him in a big movie. He's like, oh, good, he's still around. Yeah. You know, I think Legends of the Fall comes to mind where he was the other brother. The, well, I remember know, they did that brother. one commercial. I believe it was when it was uh, on VHS. They had him reprise himself. Riding yeah, the bicycle, he's like, "E.T., come home now." It's like you can bring him home too on VHS. That makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's it's it's. Everybody knows E.T. Like everybody, yeah. like I it's... mean, everyone. Can, you know, if you're a certain age and you're you have a certain awareness of film history, it is you know it it certainly was. Yeah, but it was the it, it's weird because even now it sort of stands out as this weird. It's like Ghost more than anything else <laughs> in that it didn't lose a franchise. It wasn't an action picture. It wasn't based on anything. It wasn't really inspired directly by, you know, like, okay, you know, Indiana Jones is, you know, Alan Quarterman and Star Wars is Flash Gordon, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And even Ghostbusters to a certain extent is basically what if stripes, but with science, you know, special effects. But E.T. is such a weird anomaly. It feels um, like it feels like this movie that starts where Close Encounters ended. Almost in a way, yeah. You know, we ended with the big spaceship on Earth, and now we start with this spaceship on Earth. But the, you know, no one's making contact. Yeah, it's it's, and the aliens coming into your home. I rather, you know, I don't know. It's um, it's kind and of you know, it's it's. 
I think there's something to be said, not to skip around too much, but when you look at the a lot of the films that came out this summer, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. you know, you look at what's still be what they're still trying to make into movies, you know, Star Trek, Blade Runner, the thing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, Superman, where that was last summer. Um, you know, even Rocky to a certain extent. Yet, you know, an original project like E.T. It'd be non-existent. I mean, barely even in streaming. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's uh, Spielberg. Like, the, yeah. I, there were murmurs of, like, trying to do another E.T. And it's, like, not happening. I'm guessing not until he's dead. Yeah. No Jaws, <laughs> no E.T. Yeah. Because, uh, I, I, you know, he was always very, you know, absolutely not under no circumstances of E.T. And one of the reasons he signed on to do it, The Lost World is that he sort of thought to himself, like, when some kid comes up to him and asks, why aren't you going to make another Jurassic Park? You know, he couldn't think of a good answer because it's, it's not the same thing. Yeah. So that's why he ended up doing the Lost World. Yeah, he's only yeah the, that and Indiana Jones are the only which yeah. Indiana Jones was intended to be. Yeah, that was sort of you know his franchise. Mm-hmm. You know, back when directors had other options. Well, like he wanted to do a James Bond, and George said, "You want to happen with me and Flash Gordon? Let me tell you what we could do here." You know, like that's kind of where they went there. And was we're he better ever for in? It. The- was he ever in any kind of contention? Because I know he had a reputation as going. You know, uh, yes, because of there, oh, he there, was. Yeah, yeah there, he was, and the Bond people were always like, "Not that guy." I believe yeah. that they, well, there was like the fish movie guy. Uh, no. Well, also he had a reputation for going way over budget. Yeah, uh, that's that was the whole point. And ironically, that was part of the point of Raiders, so he could actually come and finish a movie on time. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, he he was he was a name brought to the table. Uh, the he was in talks for Superman too, early, like, but Superman geez. one, okay, Superman also. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was the same thing. It's like you know this guy that you know barely finished the fish movie and went way over budget on Close Encounters, and you know then you know relatively speaking, you know crapped the bed on 1941. You know, you know, yeah, and again, Raiders was sort of like you know. I can make this big spectacular movie under $25 million. And he did. Yeah. And ironically now, and for a while, he's been one of the more budget conscious directors, mm-hmm. you know, be it through, you know, exhaustive storyboarding and pre-planning, you know, whatever, you know, even in the summer of 93, Jurassic Park was not the most expensive movie of the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's just astounding that the guy, like, even now where he's at, all his success, everything, da, 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 I'm not saying retire, but like, the fact that he can make West Side Story and it's just like still look like the hungriest director alive. Yeah. And that's part of the incredible. Like he yeah. ne- never wastes a shot. Like none of his movies. Like even Ready Player One, that movie's way better than it should be because he's behind it. Like Absolutely, without question. It was him basically saying to the you know, new wave of fantasy blockbuster movies, you know, you know, look what I can do. Yeah. Uh in a way that I, I think also works as a very mournful and somber commentary on his own pop culture legacy. Yeah. To a certain extent, you could argue that, you know, his play, his character is, uh, you know, it's Simon Pegg and Mark Rylance is George Lucas. But that's right. That's true. Um, <laughs> that's, that's very, very true. Which I guess makes, you know, as a, as a friend of the show, Aaron Newer said, I guess that means Ben Mendelsohn said, Bob Iger or something like that. Ah. Yeah. Um, who's the who's the De Palma telling? Oh God, Ryan Lance, he's a piece of shit. 
<laughs> That's what I want to know. Who's the diploma? That's what I want to know. But oh, you know, so yeah, ET. I mean, there's nothing we're gonna add to it that other people really haven't. If we haven't already, it's. I I show it to my kids and it's still effective. Like they they the the creature of ET is amazing. Um, I love the Easter eggs in it that are just just fucking Easter. Like what an Easter egg is, or we didn't call them Easter eggs then. They were just little nice little yeah. touches. Like there's like, a lot of Star Wars in this. There's yeah, playing with- I, I was always amused by the kid dressed as Yoda on Halloween. Kid dressed as Yoda, and then his brother when he's like asking him to close his eyes, he's like, "Oh, give you the power I have!" Like just naturally, <laughs> just naturally. There's so much Star Wars in here, and. <laughs> I mean, even Poltergeist had the Darth Vader poster. I mean, it's what real kids had back then. Like they, yeah, they they really did. And his buddy loaned him the rights to throw that stuff in there as well. And it, it's fun. And you know, ET would appear in what was it, a, a Revenge of the Sith or Attack of the Clones or Phantom Menace? Phantom Menace. Was, He's in the Senate. All right. So He's in those bumper cars in the Senate. In our film culture, then we go, ha, that's cute. That's funny. Today's yeah. film culture be like, how did that happen? Where does E.T. come? Why are there Star Wars toys in E.T.? How does that work? Does E.T.? It's like, it's not. It's just a fucking, like, look, that's fun. Is there right? going to be another a spinoff set in the E.T. planet in the Star Wars? I movies? need this to explain. I'm like, this is not. It's it's just a joke. People make films. They have buddies. They throw, th- like, people, like, the, the Necronomicon appears from the Evil Dead appears because it's a joke. There's a gag back and forth between Friday the 13th Nightmare on Elm Street and Evil Dead. It's a gag. That's it. It's meant for you to go, oh, that's neat. You know, James Gunn put Howard the Duck in the Guardians of the Galaxy just because he could. Yeah. And it was funny. It was funny. So, yeah, those gags. But E.T., great film still to this day. Uh, I did see a a thing, uh, like a conversation. People were having a conversation about Spielberg on Twitter, and one person was talking about their uh, they went to like a college and one of their film classes, and they were getting asked their favorite film, and they said E.T. and the college professor said, "We'll fix that." <laughs> Fuck that guy. That's nice. Yep. So, fun fact: uh, this is the original theatrical release. It opened with eleven point eight million dollars. It did thirty times its opening weekend in its first domestic uh, run. Wow. It had a thirty point four multiplier. Don't see that today. You really don't. Or ever it, again. Well, yeah, definitely not. Uh, oh, the amount of weeks. We'll be lucky to see like like eight weeks at the box office. Yeah. Well, I mean, even Greatest Showman, if you just count the Friday Sunday, that was 21. That was basically 21.75. And that was a miracle. But let, yeah, let's move over to the top 10 box office for this weekend in 1982. Uh, Scott, what we got? E.T., the extraterrestrial, opened at 1,103 theaters for a $10,370 per screen average. That was the biggest in the top 10. Not in the top 20, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, It opened with $11.8 million to easily take the top spot. Uh, It would, of course, remain in the top spot for the next seven weekends. Uh, with a film that would eventually dethrone it, it was one of my favorite stupid trivia questions because unless you know this stuff, you're never going to think of it. It's a Burt Reynolds picture called The, little, the Best Little Warehouse in Texas. We'll talk about that in mm-hmm. eight weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, spoiler, spoiler yes. here. I, I put a note here. From this point on, 
only two movies will take the number one spot at the box office the remainder of this summer in this series. My God. You named one of them. If you want to, <laughs> you want to keep guessing, keep people guessing for the second one. We'll see. But the surprise one is already the one you wouldn't guess. Scott yeah. has already mentioned, but this is it. E.T. is going to be at the top for pretty much the rest of these episodes. But what else happens? And what knocks uh, it off? In, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in second place, we have Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which dropped a reasonable 34% from its record-breaking $14 million opening weekend. Mm-hmm. It did $9.4 million for a $31 million 10-day total. Uh, it would eventually gross approximately $79 million, which was actually $3 million less than Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm. It also cost about twenty, you know, 75% less. Right. So there you go. Recycling. It's good for the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Rocky Three in its third weekend? Yes, third mm-hmm. weekend. $8.2 million, a mere 18% drop, adding 293 theaters for a 1,232 screen release. It has earned, by this point, $43.7 million. It would eventually earn approximately $125 by the time it was done. Excuse me, $124 by the time it was done. Uh, in fourth place is Poltergeist. Dropping a reasonable 22% for a 5.379 weekend on 890 theaters. It had earned 18, excuse me, 15.8 by the end of the weekend. It would go on to earn 76.6 million domestic. And now number five. Did not score tonight. Greece 2 did not score tonight, reproducing a mere $4.645 million in 1,250 theaters. That's the second widest release of the weekend behind yeah, Star Trek 2. Big which, release, yeah. Which, I mean, any movie opening in 1,600 theaters in 1982 was pretty freaking huge. And this was before 2,000 screens was the norm. It would earn a mere $3,716 per theater. And it would eventually go on to make a mere $15.1 million on an $11 million budget. And that's why there was no Grease 3. Do you wonder, like, why wasn't Grease put up at the front of the summer where that weekend with the Phoebe Cates movie and shit like that? Like, give it, yeah, I don't know. I don't it's know. Bad, but I think. Well, I mean, I, I I wonder to what extent people saw ET being as much a big of a phenomenon as it was. True. I mean, on the other hand, yeah, it's a new Spielberg film. It's obviously going to be a big deal. Yeah, he's following Raiders. He's not following 1941 here. So that's true. I don't know. That's a that's a perfectly valid question that I don't know the answer to. Like there was some there was some opportunities in the first couple of weeks for Grease Two to actually do something, like because there was nothing else, but. You know, the, the only caveat, and again, this is speculation, is maybe Paramount thought that, you know, again, Greece 1 had been such a huge hit yeah. that they thought, well, we're the danger. So we can open wherever the hell we want. Mm, that's true. That's true. Um, in but sixth they place, had to have screened it first and been like, <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, Hanky Banky in sixth place with mm-hmm. $2.2 million for a 37% drop for a $7 million 10-day total. It would eventually earn approximately nine point eight million dollars, and God forgive me, I've already completely forgotten about this movie. I had to look it up to remind me what it was. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and good old Porky, Porky still sticking around. Because when you took your kids to ET and it was sold out, 
Porky's is right there for you. I'll get uh, a ticket to Porky's and sneak get the kids into E.T. <laughs> I think you've got that backwards. Uh, That's it, why E.T. was making the money. Exactly. Like, was the kids were like, Porky's. we have something to get into Porky's with. I remember Lionsgate was complaining on the opening weekend of, uh, well, they were both Lionsgate movies. It was our Rambo and I think Epic Movie, one of those you know, movie movies. Yeah. I think it was, yeah, it was Epic Movie. Uh, Epic Movie was number one with like 18 and Rambo was two with like 16. And they claimed that, oh, Rambo was really number one. It was people buying tickets to date movie and Epic Movie and sneaking into Rambo. That's not really how that really works in no. the real world. No. I mean, maybe a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, ba 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 Porky's two yeah. million dollars, ninety-two million over thirteen weekends. Jeez. Still playing on a thousand sixty-eight screens. It's a force. Um, like this is this and the next really one is. are really this one and the next one are really surprising me here because we should be just a top ten of summer movies by now. We are yeah. not. But Sword and the Sorcerer, which again, despite having no pop culture foot, very little of a pop culture footprint, was on its way to making thirty nine million dollars domestic. It would earn one point eight million in weekend eight in four hundred and twelve screens. Once again, I'd like to remind everybody, again, when you talk about what is perceived as successful, Sword and the Sorcerer made $400,000 less than Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Um, yet you don't see any Conan, Sword and the Sorcerer Netflix show. Yeah, but look yeah, look what it's are ahead of like in the box yeah. office here. Like uh, Visiting Hours at number 10. Oh, yeah, Conan was just just behind Sword and the Sorcerer yeah, uh, with $1.3 million in Weekend 5. So yeah, it's been out for less time, but it's dropping faster. It's already earning less weekend to weekend. Mm-hmm. And Conan, Conan came that. out in the summer. Uh, mm-hmm. Sword and the Sorcerer was a spring release, uh, end of spring release. So it wasn't yeah, it opened there. Yeah, late April. Yeah, it wasn't where people were out of school or rushed in the box office. Like it was just commonly, casually making its money. Yeah. Um, the biggest per screen average of the weekend was actually Annie, which continued its relatively long run in just 14 mm. theaters. It would make another $375,000 for a 26,782 uh, per screen average. Uh, slight spoilers, the film would not go wide until next weekend. Yes, next weekend. When it would jump all the way to 1,100 screens. Um. And that's pretty much it in terms of box office news. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, they're all still making at least a million dollars. That's that's cool. Mm-hmm. We have mostly our summer lineup stacking up in there, but yeah, Porky's has been every week. You and I are like Porky's. I need, I need to watch Porky's, and I need to watch rewatch the Sword and the Sorcerer. Like you knew Porky's was like this kind of popular comedy, but I thought it was like a picked up on home video popular comedy and no it was a phenomenon at the box office as well and sort of the sorcerers i mean you know most people have heard of more people i think have heard of revenge of the nerds than porkies in this day and age correct yeah and to be fair the film made 60 million dollars on an eight million dollar budget so it's still a huge hit right um it had sequels well porkies had sequels yes, porkies had a couple at least a couple two sequels yeah porkies two yeah. and porkies revenge and then 
Yeah, Revenge of the Nerds had like four or three or four sequels. Yes. TV series, maybe. Uh, um, or I saw the movie. second one in theaters because it was another case of an already movie spawning a PG-13 sequel. Yeah. But even when I was like seven, I knew enough to know that it wasn't a good movie. Right. Anyway. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that'll do it for the weekend that was June 11th through 13th. Scott, thank you for joining me. As always, it's a fun journey. We are through getting through this thing so before we head out uh let people know where they can keep up with you uh forbes.com please google some variation of scott mendelson forbes and the ticket booth uh, i'm on twitter at, at scott mendelson and that's basically it all right i'm on twitter and instagram at brandon 4 kuhd next week scott and I are back clint eastwood takes on al pacino as they try to put a stop to all this fantasy franchise genre silliness going on at the box office top 10 and Annie gets a wide release all that more next week but trust me it'll be here soon it'll feel like tomorrow tomorrow I love you tomorrow it's only it's only a day away stay film positive Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.